I think it's about meeting people where they work. And I say that because I always start with a little bit of trust. I'm a trusting person first, I think. And so for me, I'm trusting that you're doing the job because you'd like to make a paycheck and you'd like to see the company be successful and you'd like to be successful. So you're probably not going out of your way to like to sabotage yourself, right? So if you're doing something, there might be a reason that you're doing it. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing. Stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Ladies and gents, welcome back to the Gong Studio. And today we've got a virtuoso, a real maestro. Warning, rockstar in the house of, yes, operations. Specifically, Brian Bayless, the VP of go-to-market operations at Gong, is here for today's episode. When I say Brian has a passion for revolutionizing sales operations, I mean it. Yes, Bayless, as he's affectionately referred to, as the VP of go-to-market operations at Gong, is the mastermind behind a seamless integration across RevOps and sales, which he discusses is not always an easy feat or the case for lots of companies out there. Bayless's strategic insights, data-driven approach, unparalleled knack for optimizing process have positioned Gong's RevOps team for true 360 go-to-market success. In the episode, Bayless offers a wisdom-filled, chock-fold-of-nuggets discussion over the keys to success and what has separated him from his peers within the profession. He emphasizes the importance of not only just applying a growth mindset and being gritty, but also really constantly checking himself as what he's doing in service of his constituents rather than himself. In addition, we also, over the course of the episode, touch on accountability, trusting employees, and of course, measuring that success. I'm fired up for today's episode also because Bayless is my boss's boss. Make sure you like the episode. Send it to all your friends. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. But honestly, it's a real doozy. Go ahead, strap yourselves in because you may be thinking, RevOps, lame. No, this one's really awesome. So give it a gander. DJ, spin that. Brian, stoked to have you in the Gong Reveal Studios. Thanks, man. Good to be here. Appreciate the invite. Brian, also affectionately referred to in-house as Bayless. You'll hear me address him as both on this episode. Bayless, what I find to be unique in your approach to RevOps is that you are, and I don't say this because you're my boss's boss, but it's just an objective <laughs> fact that you seem to be universally adored as the leader of operations, which is not typically the case. In fact, in my career, and certainly we've had other leaders in your function from other companies talk about at times the tension, the friction, or even the adversarial nature of the dynamics between sales and RevOps. So let's start there because you have defied the statistical odds of being pegged as a gatekeeper or something that actually interferes with forward momentum. And in fact, you've been an accelerant to it at Gong. Talk to us about what is your secret formula? Start light. I like it. Just jump right in. Go for the uh, jugular. Go for the jugular. Yeah. Well, let's operate under the assumptions then of what you just said. I just, you know, pay everybody out at 100% commission or more and, you know, set territories how they want them. Super easy. And then we move on. Well, no, thanks, Brian, for I, coming on the episode. That's it, everybody. That's it. That's it. And that's all you need. It's a good question. I think, number one, I enjoy what I do. And so I don't jump into the ops role like it's a burden. 
you know, it's kind of, I genuinely like seeing other people succeed. You know, ops is one of those roles where kind of the person behind the person, right? We're not selling the deal or closing the deal. We're not helping the customer. We're not actively doing any of the things that actually touch the kind of the front line, but we're helping everybody who does. And so I think you genuinely have to love seeing other people succeed and helping them do that. I think the second part of that is then being on the same team, right? It's being on the same side of the aisle or the same, whatever analogy you want. It's not me versus them or you versus me, or it's us, right? We are trying to accomplish your goals. We are trying to accomplish the company goals, right? The more we sell, the better the company does, everybody wins, right? And so I think approaching it from the standpoint of not, I need you to do, and we need to insert the blank, right? Follow this process or use this tool or, you know, the typical ops things that folks don't want to hear in order to sell more, in order to help you achieve quota, in order to help the customer. And I think when you focus on the customer and you focus on the outcomes that have to do with the customer, you end up on the same side of the aisle, you end up on the same team, you end up kind of, you know, brothers and sisters in arms or whatever, trying to accomplish the same goals. And then we get along better. So, And when you open up the aperture of your perspective or you extend your horizon to the customer or even to a seller hitting their quota as opposed to, oh, like I need to launch some process. Yeah. I'm wondering in 17 years at McAfee, did you encounter the opposite style of operations, which has led you to this epiphany? Or I mean, in 17 years, let's unpack some of that too, because I have to think you learned through a lot of potholes yeah. and stumbling blocks there, things that you would not want to replicate when you have ascended to sort of occupy the helm of operations at Gong. Yeah. You know, it's a good point because when I came into ops, I had no ops experience. Yeah. Ops isn't one of those things, or at least it wasn't when I was coming up Drew McAfee. It's not one of those things you go, I'm going to go do ops. Like that's why I'm going to go to college because I want to be an ops person. 2020 hindsight, maybe I should have, I would have done a few things differently, but I think it was, there was an aha moment for me when we were effectively re-implementing CRM. We were an old Siebel shop and we were implementing the new Oracle suite for the CRM system. And we were debating whether or not we wanted to go to Salesforce, something else, or stick with an Oracle product. And I remember sitting with the sales leadership team and they were Oracle, kind of ex-Oracle sellers. So they kind of came up through sales ranks. It was very inside sales, very regimented, very controlled environment. And I remember the debate raging on open or open or I'll call it a closed CRM where there's very specific gates that you need to hit in order to do something, right? And that CRM system that we implemented was effectively implemented to answer ops questions. It was not implemented to help sellers sell more. And I go back to that all the time where I think about the way that we implemented that CRM system, the salespeople hated it. I mean, it was a mat like, about as close to a mutiny as you can get when we rolled it out. It was like, good news. There's 17 steps to move to the next stage and that's going to get us all the data we want, right? Meanwhile, the sellers are like, so it takes me 45 minutes after every meeting to even just get to a spot where I can schedule something. Like, this is ridiculous. This is not seller forward. And so, you know, I think I go back to that where I didn't know a lot. I didn't know any better, right? Mm -hmm. I just, I had come from the finance world. So regimented sounded great. Right. I was going to get all my questions answered. But if the sellers didn't use the system, which they did, they just basically said, man, not going to use it. I'm still just going to go sell because I have to hit quota. Not only did I have unhappy sellers, I still didn't get all the data that I needed and I had to re-implement again. So it created double, triple, quadruple the work. 
So I kind of go back to that. Like, I, I think that was eye-opening to focus on what do they need as opposed to what do I need? Because again, the customer, if you focus on the customer and what we need to do as a company to support the customer, I just think clear, you, you get a little bit more clarity that way rather than what I need. So I don't know if this was intentional, but one of the things I picked up, the operative pronoun you use was it gets us, it gets RevOps the data. So perfect. And even, I mean, a few comments ago, you were talking about adjusting your awareness that it's really all in service of the seller, they, yeah. or even the customer, another they as opposed to us. And that being a formative lesson for you. Thinking about as you reshift whatever your prioritization or triaging strategy is with the onus being it's all in service of our internal sellers downstream or even our customers. Talk to me about what mechanisms you have in place now that you're at Gong that help you avoid constricting productivity. Because again, back to my preamble when we opened this episode, I don't see you as a bottleneck at all. And I think it's a refreshing pivot from having worked in other organizations where we do unfortunately become victims of the 17-step CRM paralysis or syndrome. Yeah. What are you doing to keep everyone in check as we see Gong getting bigger, as we see in your, you know, new levels of complexity where you might want all that data, but you're the barometer or governor of that? What's in place? I think it's about meeting people where they work. And I say that because I always start with a little bit of trust. I'm a trusting person first, I think. And so for me, I'm trusting that you're doing the job because you'd like to make a paycheck and you'd like to see the company be successful and you'd like to be successful. So you're probably not going out of your way to like to sabotage yourself, right? So if you're doing something, there might be a reason that you're doing it. And so instead of trying to, instead of ignoring that reason that you, the seller, or you, the customer service rep, or you, the support agent, are doing something, I'd like to ask, why are you doing that? Seek to understand how that's going to help them be more successful and be a trusted advisor in that as opposed to a dictator, right? Mm. Instead of don't do that, do this, why are you doing that? And how do you, why do you think that helps you get a better chance of success, right? Maybe like a process example, right? The 17 steps, right? You mentioned, like I said, like 17 things that you have to go through. The sellers are going through those things. Let's not pretend that like I'm going to take 17 to zero, right? The 17 things are probably happening, right? The discovery process, establishing that there's a budget, making sure that you're an economic buyer, knowing that there's a need, match, like all the things that you do in a selling process, those are taking place. It's when you ask it to be double or triple work, right? Once, you've, once you're done doing that, go document it. And then once you're done documenting it, tell me why you did it, right? And once you're done telling me why you did it, fill out this spreadsheet so that I know that you did it, right? Like all of those things, those are the things that I seek to remove. And, and instead, when you're on a call or you send an email or you meet with a customer or a prospect, you're doing all those things. Allow me to capture that at the time that you do it, right? Selfishly, I mean, we use Gong, obviously, right? And so I'm able to meet the reps where they work and take that burden of redocumenting or reestablishing or redoing that process over and over again. The benefit I get in that is I learn what the best people are doing, right? Instead of saying, everybody follow this process, which I would go back, you know, 10 years is probably the old way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Instead, I say, what's the process that's working? Now let's replicate that, right? I think when I first took over enablement at McAfee, one of my early learnings was, Sellers learn the best from other sellers that have had success. That's who they're going to listen to. They're not going to listen to me. Like, why would they listen to me? I haven't sold enterprise software or, you know, intrusion prevention hardware. Like, they're not going to listen to me. And so listen to success. 
and listen to what helped them achieve that success. And so when you're seeking to understand the process that helps the best do what they do, and then showing that to others to help them do what they do better, it's different than, hey, implement my process. So the complexity bit is interesting. So complexity, when you start to introduce complexity, let's all use products being sold as an example, right? You start out a single product, then you have multi-product, then you have bundles of products, then you have multiple bundles, and then you have bundles of bundles, and you have super bundles, and then you have, I mean, you have services attached to all kinds of things, right? You can go in lots of different directions. I view my role in operations as keeping the complex simple. So when we are designing either a process or a system or a tool or a something to help a seller put something on an order form, communicate our offerings, do a pricing and packaging discussion, do a roadmap presentation, whatever that looks like. If there's a level of complexity, how can we make it as simple as possible for our customers and prospects to understand and consume? If it's really complex internally, that's, I mean, I'm okay with that. Sometimes it does need to be complex internally, but that doesn't mean I need to expose that complexity. There's a very popular CRM vendor that pretty much everybody uses. Sometimes the quotes and the order forms that you get and you get like, you know, if you're buying, if you're doing ramped seats, you get like 10 of them as opposed to one. It, it gets overly complex very fast and it gets exposed to me, the buyer. That's what I want to avoid. I just, I want the customers and the sellers to be able to keep it simple. And so when we're talking about complexity, it's not to avoid the complexity, it's to make the complex simple. And sometimes the complexity just can't be avoided, but you can try to figure out ways to make it simple for those having to deal with it. Helpful? Really helpful. I want to talk about a different dimension of complexity, which is in good times versus bad times. Peacetime markets, wartime markets. You talk about, Brian, being a departure, refreshingly so, from a ops leader that's a dictator and all of your curiosity and seeking to understand. I'm curious, does the threshold or the latitude of curiosity and trust that you're able to exert, does that feel pressured to restrict a bit when the margins for error or the, I'd say, flexibility to experiment during peacetime markets is compromised when you're not seeing such a windfall or the wind's not at your backs? Does that adjust how you become, well, not a dictator, given your wealth of experience and your tenure, do you become more pronounced in decision-making as opposed to allowing the trust to sort of guide the ship? Yeah, that's a good point. I think I become less patient. So I think the approach is similar, but instead of the, hey, this is out there for you to adopt whatever you decide to adopt, right? If we know that something is successful, if we know that the people doing it are achieving success, that it becomes a little bit more of a tell as opposed to an ask, right? You know, we are seeing success with this messaging. We are seeing success with this objection handling. We are seeing success with this product. We're seeing success with this market, whatever that is. And it becomes, I have a little less patience for the, let's just let the outcome develop, which I know it'll develop. But sometimes I just have to, I do feel the need to force that a little bit faster. But I'm doing that with examples of success, not with an I think right? Or, and it's never me. It's never an I. It's always in partnership with sales leadership or executive leadership. And I think, I, I think the best way to answer that for me is a patience thing. It's just, it's a little bit less patient, but I try to keep the approach the same. Subconsciously or consciously, I I think if you flip-flop depending on the environment, I just think that creates a lot, there's a little bit of a lack of trust there. It's like, which Bayless am I going to get? Am I going to get the dictator or, you know, like, so I'll never be the dictator, but I'll, the timing might be a little bit different. Like we've got two weeks to change this. 
Like, mm-hmm. let's figure out how to change it as opposed to, we know we need to change it. Take your time. Not a big deal. There is a little bit more urgency. I think I've used, I think I've used with you a basketball analogy in the past. And it's like, you know, during the normal, during the regular season, everybody knows the rules, right? The rules don't change, right? From regular season to playoffs and then to championship series or whatever. The rules of the game are the same, but how you play changes dramatically, mm-hmm. right? You are caught in playoffs, which I'll equate to wartime. You're constantly evaluating player performance and making adjustments on the fly based on what the defense is throwing at you constantly, like in game, in between games. It's like this maniacal focus on what is going to work next play, next, next half, next quarter, next game, right? As opposed to the regular season, it's like, oh, let's see how this plays out. You know, they're starting to do more pick and rolls. Let's see if this works. Let's just, let's give it a little time. Let's see if we can get this player dynamic working. In the playoffs, you just don't have that luxury. You have to go with what's working right then, right? And I think that the rules don't change. You know what I mean? Like throughout the Mm -hmm. season, the rules have stayed the same, but how you play the game within those rules changes pretty dramatically. And from your vantage point in mission control, you institute tools, processes to attempt to ensure with highest probability the success of sales. So it's very easy and binary to gauge and measure those sellers on the front lines. Are you above quota? Are you below it? And tinkering with that. I'm curious how you apply that same visibility and accountability to the teams that report into your organization when we don't have such a clear, I don't know, you're above or below quota. What are you using structurally to hold those teams accountable? Because I think certainly I feel it in a very pervasive way, the stigma of, oh, enablement. What do you really know about the visceral suck of being a bag carrying quota selling seller? Yeah. You're in the ivory tower. But I think that you do things differently within your team to demand and command, not in a dictatorial sort of way, but you achieve tremendous success out of your folks. How are you doing that? It's a good question. You know, whether on purpose or not, I think it's trust is one. Okay. Trusting again that that folks understand the importance of what they need to deliver, making sure that's clear. Right. And again, trusting them to understand that. I think number two, it's the type of accountability. Sometimes in ops, we tend to get caught up in our own metrics. You know, like, was this delivered on time? Was the CSAT of the training high? You know, was attendance 100%? You know, was this bug fixed within 24 hours? You know, percent of quotes that are automated versus manual. You know, kind of we come up with these metrics that show how good ops is, right? Or how good enablement is. At the end of the day, the outcome matters more. And so if the CSAT of a particular course is low, I'm going to inspect why, right? But if within the first couple of weeks, because again, we start measurement, I mean, you know, right? I mean, we start measurement on things that we roll out right then. It's like, are we doing it? Adoption. And is it having the outcome that we desired? So we know within a fir- within the first couple of weeks of rolling something out, whether or not it's working, that's the most important thing. And so I think holding people accountable on our teams to the success of our team, our broader gong team. I think is the right way to go, right? So you trust that they understand that tie into the overall impact of the company. And then you measure it based on the overall impact of the company, not on, you know, did you do this tactical thing right? We're going to talk about that, right? But at the end of the day, if win rates are going up after we rolled out messaging, I'm probably going to say, good job. Maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't done perfectly. Maybe the CSAT wasn't 100%. Maybe you didn't have 100% attendance. Maybe nothing, maybe... A lot of things didn't go perfectly, but at the end of the day, if we're achieving that outcome that we set out to achieve, great, right? Now let's see how we can do it better next time, as opposed to, you know, try to inspect exactly what we did wrong. So 
Before we hear more from Ryan, let's dive into the data behind building trust. According to the Wall Street Journal, trustworthy companies and teams outperform those non-trustworthy alternatives by 2.5 times. I'll say it again. Trustworthy teams outperform their non-trustworthy peers by 2.5 times. Why is that? Well, trust leads to collaboration, transparency, and accountability with employees at all levels. This means prioritizing talent development and professional growth, investing in workplace safety, ensuring access to wellness programs and resources, and of course, using data analytics to inform talent decisions. Trust is the real deal. If you want to replicate Brian's playbook of getting RevOps and sales to play as one trustworthy team, well, create a culture of trust. Enough for me. Back to Bayless. You're totally answering my question. My hypothesis, Bayless, is you have chosen to index more towards the outcome than the process. Yes. And I think it's tempting when you get wrapped around the process axle as an ops leader who's accountable to the process. That's where perhaps you are blinded to fixate on that so that the outcome, which could be achieved in any number of processes, is deprioritized. And is that a fair synopsis that as an ops leader out there that's listening for sales leaders that are struggling with their ops gauge, are they outcome or process focused? I think so. I mean, let me try and separate like a couple of different processes, right? So for example, quoting, right? We have a quoting process. There is a quoting handbook. It, there is a way to quote. There are prices to quote. There are discount approvals, right? Like it works a certain way. The system was built to mirror the process, right? So mm -hmm. the system runs. If you follow the system and do it the right way, you're going to follow the process. There isn't this like disconnect between the system and the process, right? I think that's number one. Number two is that's different from the sales process, mm -hmm. right? And that goes back to what I said at the start about the sales process. We have a sales process. And if we start to see people deviating from the sales process and achieving success, I'm going to want to know what they're doing, why they're doing it. And then maybe we fold that into the process, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is process innovation. Like maybe that's the answer is there are certain places where we are constantly seeking to innovate the process. And there's other areas where, I mean, come on, the process is the process until something changes that necessitates a change in the process. For example, I'm quoting, when we move to bundles, we're going to have to quote differently, right? And so we are going to have to rebuild the quoting process. Sales process is a constant innovation. It's not one of those where we set it and we go six months later, we're like, I can't figure out why nobody's following the sales process. Let's go beat the snot out of everybody to get back in line and follow the process, right? Like it evolved. Let's evolve with it. That ability to pick and roll with flexibility in this organic evolution is something that I don't think all ops leaders are agile enough to do or celebrate. I think that there's some rigidity and that gets back to this idea of, you being a more curious leader as opposed to dictating with constriction an oppressive regime of process being thrust upon people. I want to pivot to our last topic because I'm just looking at the clock. Talk to us a little bit about where we started, where you said, oh God, hindsight being 2020, maybe I would have studied something different had I known my career would ultimately land up in ops, but you're classically trained in finance and accounting. Yeah. And when you examine now the bench of talent that you've assembled at Gong, Talk to us about those personas or those pedigrees at the individual level, and then also anything within the tech stack that's conducive to your winning formula. I think for team members, there's a couple of things. I think there's a, you've met, you said the word curious a couple of times. I think there's a natural curiosity that works, 
And it's one that is, I'll use the word innovative, right? It's like trying to figure out using technology or process or, you know, something in our toolkit to drive excellence. You know, how can I do that better? How can I do it different? Is there a better way? Like just constantly being that, like that natural curious person that is always trying to do it a little bit different or better, right? I think that ties directly into having a growth mindset, like driving yourself to get better through ownership, accountability, persistence, like, you know, really giving it the best. There's a Finnish word, Sisu. It's like this concept of like gritty, you know, ops people, we need to be, we need to be gritty in how we learn and how we do things, right? That gets us to data, right? You need to use data. You can't just, you can't just wing it. I mean, I'm sitting here talking about, you know, being curious and not necessarily honing on the process. It doesn't mean that we just don't look at data, right? We're probably the opposite. We're constantly looking at all the data to understand where our blind spots might be, where somewhere where maybe we need to pay a little bit more attention. And then the last thing is this concept of being in the know. I I think that Ox Partners, and this started with me in finance, as a business partner, I always sought to put myself in the business owner's shoes and try to know what they know and try to know what they don't know. Because if I can figure out in the organization things that they don't know, now I'm bringing value back to that business owner on the how, the what, the when, the why, you know, things are going on inside the organization. I become that trusted partner to them in helping them achieve their goals and ultimately the company's goals. But I have to be in the know to do that, right? I can't just be, I can't only know what they know. Does that make sense? I think those are probably four things. And we, by the way, at Gong, those are, that's what we base our awards on inside of ops, right? Innovation, growth mindset, data-driven, in the know. That's, I think those things are what make a great ops team, at least for my team. So, so Bayless, we can see typically across a lot of organizations that ops will advocate for a new call it tool initiative. It comes from your team. Let's take CRM as an example. You spend a king's ransom to institute a new CRM. You feel the pressure financially. You feel the pressure even existentially with your own credibility. So you say, oh my God, we spent God knows how much on CRM. It has to work. And being a more curious leader that wants to patiently and curiously go about instituting that, I'm wondering how you reconcile what is very real understandable pressure. Maybe it's from the CFO or your constituents. How do you reconcile that without devolving into more of a dictator-like tendency to force this upon people? I think it has to do with what we see we're on the hook for, what we think we're on the hook for, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I think too often we go to, I'm on the hook to make sure it's adopted. Like that's the natural, like the ops response to that. Oh, my job is to make sure it's adopted, whatever it is, and use the CRM example, right? What I think we just need to step back and go, no, no, what are we really on the hook for? And like in the CRM example, what we're really on the hook for is to make sure that we are providing sellers a way to better engage with their customers and prospects. And ops is on the hook to figure out how to provide insights into what's really happening at scale so that we can replicate success. Like one of the key tenets of a CRM is getting that data out of it, right? So it's not that we're adopted, it's that we're getting those insights. And you can get those insights without necessarily being fully adopted or not being as dictatorial about how to adopt, right? And so I think it goes back to, you know, at the start, I talked about being on the same side of the aisle. It's really honing in on the why, why you're implementing something, why you're putting it in place and focus on that. Focus on those success metrics, win rate, conversion rate, 
average selling, average sales size, we call it ASP, those types of metrics as opposed to the adopted. Is it adopted? Don't, I don't know. That's just the wrong thing to be focused on, in my opinion. So, Does the tendency to fixate on adoption as an example, or even let's take a broader swath in this, does the sensation of I'm on the hook for X, Y, or Z, is that a byproduct or symptomatic of finance and the CFO giving anyone the screws who's spending money? Or is that more self-imposed to demonstrate that you're producing value for the org? Or is it a combination of self-induced yeah. plus the CFO? I think it's both. I think that's naturally where finance goes because it's a spend in our world, right? It's a spend per seat. Therefore, I need to make sure that the seats are being used. Are the seats being used? Yes, I'm adopted. Look, you know, each seat, right? So I, I do think there's something there. But I also think it's just the the this is how we've spoke this is how we've spoken about it in the past, right? It's adoption was where we stopped measuring. Instead of adoption tied to outcomes, it was adoption because we weren't able to tie adoption to outcomes. Now with something like Gong, you can tie adoption to outcomes, therefore focus on the outcomes because that's ultimately what it's driving. I, I was on a call with a with a customer actually, and they were having this challenge with a renewal with Gong because it was you know, we're not seeing the adoption. That was verbatim what they said back to me. And my question back was, well, are you recording all, are they still recording all the calls? Like, what do you mean by adopted? It's like, well, they're not logging into Gong. Okay. But you're, but they're recording their calls. Yeah, of course. Yeah. They're still recording the calls. Like, okay. So you're still getting all that data. They don't have to go into the CRM. You get all the insights you need. They're spending more time with their customers and prospects. That sounds like, a, that sounds like adopted. I'm being a little bit facetious, but do you really want them to log in? If they're not getting any value from logging in, then why, right? And I know that's a little controversial. And yes, we want them logging in because it's going to make them better at what, we had, at what we implemented. But that's kind of the route that I would take there. Does that make sense? And when you talk about the legacy paradigm of adoption is where we stop monitoring. That was the paradigm for decades. And now we have this new technology that allows you to draw a continuum between adoption and business outcomes, right. which are more revealing, certainly even at a board level. I'm wondering... You're talking about taking, at times, even a contentious stance with someone in finance. Are folks who represent that business unit, are they receptive to being challenged? Do they have an appetite to extrapolate beyond butts in seats or seats being used in software? Are they willing to entertain a more progressive interpretation of what is suitable given the expense? In my experience, yes. Especially when you can back it up with like real data based on the real conversations, emails, interactions that are happening in your organization. And you disconnect that from a login, right? They're, again, back to I'm meeting reps where they work. I don't need you to log into anything. I need mm -hmm. you to talk to the customer. Yeah. That's what I need you to focus on first and foremost, right? And, you know, at least on our side, I mean, I think Tim's an amazing CFO. And he challenges me constantly on the number of tools that we have, the spend that we have on technology, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Tim is very receptive to that conversation because you're literally going to an effective ROI, right? In tying it to direct outcomes, as opposed to, of course, we need this tool because everybody logs in, right? And when you, sh when you frame it like that, like, do you see how ridiculous that sounds? We need it because everybody's logging in. It made sense because that's all we were able to measure. Yeah. Now that we can measure the impact that using it has on the business, 
you should be tying it to the outcomes. Novel as perspective for all of our listeners who span being in sales as ICs all the way up to C-suite executives, whether they're in ops or driving revenue as the CRO. So Bayless, thanks for continuing to debunk misunderstandings, provide a roadmap or a yellow brick road to resolving adversarial tensions that could very well exist within our listeners' organization. We always close episodes with the same question. So if you've heard an episode, Brian, you know what's coming. The final question is, if you could describe sales in only one word, what would it be? I should have prepared for this one. This is, this is the one question I should have prepared for. Um, it was right under your nose. You've got no excuse. I you know. knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. And, and I had so many, there are so many words that I would use, but I have to pick one. People have hyphenated words. As a loophole. I'm not going to hyphenate. I'm not going to, there's no cheating. I'm not going to, I'm not going to cheat like that. So based on the fact that I've now started meeting with more customers and prospects to kind of, you know, evangelize a little bit of what we're doing with Gong, because the last part of your question was what tools, right? Gong, like, I mean, without Gong, I, I probably couldn't do any of this. And it's why I joined Gong. I had the opportunity to do this job with Gong. Maybe this word has been used. I, I don't know. I'm going to use exhilarating. And I'll go back to what I said about ops being in a position to serve. And I think I have sold things. I'm not going to talk about what I've sold, but I've sold things. I've sold things in my day, different things, never software. Very cryptic. Listeners, yeah. you can arrive at your own conclusions. <laughs> what Bayless is peddling. <laughs> it was Christmas trees and cars. Okay. Don't worry about it. We've got others on our squad that have sold books and magazines and knives and all kinds of stuff. But in my fundraising days, I sold chocolate statues of liberties. Whole other story. But there's something about helping, helping someone achieve their goals. And I think sellers naturally gravitate towards that as well. Um, and I think we don't give them enough credit for that. And there's something about the sale itself that is exhilarating. It is, I don't know, it's fun, it's energetic, it's exciting. You learn new things, you meet new people. And that process itself, getting from light interest all the way through to, I am going to help you achieve your goals. I just, I think that's exhilarating. Well, a really good way to tie a bow on this episode from a guy who has sold everything from candy to cars to Christmas trees and unequivocally cemented himself with one more C word as a consigliere to leaders internally at Gong. Bayless, really appreciate you being so candid Likewise, with man. your unvarnished honesty. For those listeners out there, Brian Bayless, VP of Go-To-Market Operations at Gong. It's been a real treat. Thanks so much, Brian. Cheers, man. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, come on, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen. 